and welcome to One Football Weekly. My name is Ian McCourt. Joining me around the table today is the finest that the One Football newsroom has to offer, and uh, Ryan Kent. Yes. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm pretty good. Great. Thanks. Paddy Higgs is also around the table. Paddy, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Great. Looking forward to my debut. Yeah, yeah, nice to have you on. And Christopher Schmidt is also making his debut. Chris, how are you? I'm fine, thanks so much. Yeah, good to hear. Um, can, I, can I just make a comment? Yeah. Did you change into a Liverpool kit for this? No. <laughs> no, you just... You've been wearing this all day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, this was going to be the bit of the podcast where we ranted and we raved for a few minutes about Liverpool about how they don't care about their fans and how the club are just interested in money. But last night, late in the evening, there was a game changer of a statement, a 926 word statement, where Liverpool, the owners of Liverpool, outlined how sorry they were about what, what has gone on over the last, the last week or so and how they're going to change the ticket prices over the next, uh, the next two seasons. The key points of this were that the £77 tickets that anger the fans so much have been scrapped. The highest price ticket is going to be £59. The other points were that there's going to be no categorisation for games, so regardless if you're playing Manchester United or West Ham United, all the prices are going to be the same for the fans. And and finally, there will be no season tickets that will be priced in excess of £1,000. So the most expensive one will be just over £850. Chris, as a supporter of Liverpool who was at the game against Sunderland, does this come as a surprise to you? I mean, first of all, I have to say I was a bit disappointed when I arrived at Liverpool. So there was no club at all um, and they planned a a walkout at the minute 77. I mean, of course, around about 20 pounds is a lot of money, but Enfield will be always sold out. I mean, to be honest, there are a lot of fans around the world who are willing to pay a lot of money for for a ticket. I met a guy from China who paid 30, one about um, 400 pounds for for a single ticket Liverpool against Man United three weeks ago. So, I mean, that's a lot of money, but people are willing to pay it. Do you think that's the kind of point, though, that people are making with Liverpool fans, that even though it's going to be sold out all the time, um, it's becoming more of a tourist thing? Uh, You mentioned the guy from China, like, the Liverpool fans want the stadium filled with tourists, or do they want local people? I mean, in general, you want that local people, because they are creating the atmosphere but I mean as I said it will be always sold out Um, but the atmosphere won't be that good without the local Mm. supporters. Chris uh, just what was the atmosphere like when the walkout actually happened I mean you're obviously in the crowd did you gauge what the feeling was particularly with the supporters that didn't walk out? I mean to be honest I stayed until the very last minute, so I just went to a game once a season, um, so I stayed until the end. I mean, there was a lot of anger, but there was no support when the team needed it the most. I mean, that was a dying minutes of the game, 10 minutes to go, and Thunderland scored twice. That's a bit of shitty. I mean, it's. It's not the best case for for the team. I mean, you have 
always find a solution for the team and and they missed the support so in the end they just drew the game yeah Paddy what does this mean for the other Premier League clubs because they now look they now look pretty bad beside Liverpool don't they yeah and I think Chris touched upon the fact here that you know when a guy's paying 400 pounds for a ticket um, you can you know, I, I wouldn't justify the decision of the Liverpool board to increase the prices, but you can see why they're doing. You know, and um, it is treating people like customers um, as opposed to fans. But you can understand at least the business mentality behind it. But this puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the clubs. You know, there's a real criticism about the fan experience now in the Premier League, and uh, that it is becoming um, really just you know um, the sort of experience you'll have at the London Eye, for example, or the Tower of London, or something like this. And, I think um, this puts a lot of pressure on, on the other clubs to to sort of choose between the fans and, and the money. And it's going to be interesting to see, um, after a win like this by the COP, um, what other fan groups might take this um, route and, and how, how much success they'll have with their clubs. Do you think it's going to spread? It'd be great to see. I mean, you know, the, the fans... Clubs will always say that the fans are the lifeblood. Um, how much they actually believe that or you know, um, use that in their day-to-day dealings is another thing, but it is good to see the fan power work, and particularly in a, in a um, you know, non-violent, peaceful way, if you will. Um, as Chris pointed out, the, um, the effect on the team perhaps wasn't um, you know, ideal, certainly with the result, um, but it, it made headlines for the right reasons and it uh, also got the result. Yeah, speaking of uh, fans and headlines, Borussia Dortmund, uh, have all the fans have also come in for headlines recently? They came, the their away fans came into the Stuttgart game 18 minutes late, and then started raining tennis balls down on the pitch in protest at the uh, excessive ticket prices they've been charged, which is nothing compared to what you get of at course. the Premier League. Uh, a few people are confused about the tennis balls, Paddy, but I think you have the answer. Yeah, well, before we get to that, has anyone actually seen anything like that before? No, yeah, never yeah. seen tennis balls. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen fans throw pigs' heads, but never tennis balls. Yeah, it was it was bizarre. I mean, I think it was uh, Kostic, Philip Kostic, the Stuttgart player, was down at the corner flag, or at least by the byline, and seeing all those tennis balls almost rain down on him was something that uh, you, you really won't see much. Do you know what it reminded me of? Do you remember that Sony Bravia ad from a couple yeah. of years ago where they yeah. let all the they let all the bouncing balls down Filbert Street in yep. San Francisco? Yep. That's exactly what it reminded absolutely. me of. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, so what was the reason behind it? Why tennis balls? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of conjecture about this. Um, a lot of people sort of um, assuming that it was due to the perceived elitism of, of tennis, um, but uh, it doesn't seem that was the case. For those who... Uh, a few people may have noticed there was a banner in the Dortmund fan section saying, Grosse Tennis, um, which uh, literally means big tennis, but um, I guess more of a, a you know a, a, an accurate translation would be um, you know good tennis, um, and it can be used. That phrase can really be used for any sport um, as a bit of a sarcastic applause. So hence the uh, the tennis balls, um, which is yeah to, to make that to help Dortmund fans make the point about that t- those ticket prices. It's actually quite interesting because one football did a study last year, August September, with their Go Euro, another Berlin-based startup. Um, and we kind of analysed the ticket prices around the world as well as the kind of ranking of the league in terms of uh, quality and the players that play in the league, which kind of gave this overall football price index listing. It's, um, it's quite interesting to see that Germany is still kind of considered the best value league in the world. Chris mentioned earlier about um, the atmosphere in Liverpool 
uh, Anfield when he went to the game. It's quite interesting to see that like most of the leagues around the world that have a low ticket price tend to have the best atmospheres. Because I'm looking at this price index now and you, you look at leagues in Mexico, Colombia, Turkey, Poland, you know, those those tickets are like between seven and fifteen pounds per game on average. Um, and then you look at like the Premier League and it kind of ties in with this tennis thing where it's more of an elitist kind of sport. Young young people don't have £53 to spend every single game. They're kind of young and energetic, they want to support their team, um, but they can't really afford to, which is a real shame. Yeah, and I think, you know, even the ones who would obviously going uh, getting a season ticket, for example, you're not going to pay 53 quid a, a ticket, but it's still what, around a 1,000 quid, you know, um, which is a big outlay. Um, for, yeah. a, for, a, for a young, you know, twenty-something who's mm-hmm. you know trying to make ends meet in London. I think the average age of a fan at a Premier League match is now forty. Yeah, it's incredible. It just goes yeah. to show, and no forty-year-old man is really shouting that much at a football game. No. <laughs> <laughs> So a bad week for Liverpool fans got better, but a bad week for Gary Neville is not getting any better. Last night, his Valencia side could only draw 1-1 with Barcelona's seaside. Uh, some of the more interesting aspects of this game, Ivan Rakitic, the deep-lying midfield creator, played as a number nine. And there was 12 people on the Curva Nord. 12 Incredible. people. Yeah. Incredible. Most of the Mestalla, most of the Mestalla was, was very empty. It made for, for surreal scenes, all, like something from a pre-season training game. Um, Paddy, you've been following Valencia for a while. Where's it all gone wrong for Neville? Yeah, I mean, it's a, this is the latest chapter in a pretty um, intriguing story um, since uh, for, for, for quite some time now. To be honest, I don't think it was uh, Gary Neville's fault that things have gotten to where they are. Um, they've had quite a bit of drama um, since uh, Peter Lim has taken over the club. The uh, Probably more recently, the focus, um, before Neville came in, the focus was on Jorge, Jorge Mendes, of course, the, the super agent. Um, Valencia spent quite a lot of money on Mendez-owned agents in the last 18 months. Um, and you could argue that a lot of them, to be honest, haven't really justified the price tag. Gary Neville, of course, has his own links with Peter Lim um, from the uh, Salford uh, club that they, uh, they're both involved in. So there's a lot of threads that really tie this uh, Valencia story together and there's a lot of reasons why it's going badly. But Gary Neville, of course, being the figurehead as the coach now, remains to be seen uh, how much longer he'll he'll last at the moment. Um, I think the initial agreement was until the end of the season. Um, If things continue like they are, um, we might not see him there um, even at that stage. Was it a bit naive of him to think that he could go in and sort Valencia, a club that's been, at least in organisational terms anyway, a mess for a long, long time? Yeah, it just goes to show how uh, football can really chew you up and spit you out. Um, you know, a few months ago, Gary Neville was everyone's favourite commentator. Could do no wrong. Yeah, could um, do no wrong at all. Obviously, going to the Euros um, as part of England's um, backroom staff and taking on a huge job for his first um, managerial role. You know, the top one at least. Um, and it really, you know, it's all gone wrong. Um, perhaps a little bit naive to, to go to Spain and, and expect that he could at least in that short time frame, have some considerable success. But Valencia, we've seen quite a few um, British managers struggle over there, David Moyers of late. No one since Bobby Robson, I think, has had any particular um, success. So it remains to be seen. Um, he's had his brother Phil there, who was there before he arrived as, as well, to you know hopefully help him settle, but it hasn't really worked out either way. Right, they face Espanyol this weekend at home in the Mestalla. 
Neville's called for an electric atmosphere from the fans, but they're just four points above the relegation zone, so they're really going to need that backing behind them. It looks like this match could make or break Neville. Uh, Ryan, how do you see it panning out? Well, if it was anyone but Espanyol, it could be could be game over, to be honest. Um, Espanyol, they have lost the last eight games away from home and scored three goals in those games. Um, so there are kind of positives for, for Neville to kind of take into this game. As you say, the Valencia side hasn't performed at all since November, I think the, the last win was, um, before Neville was even in charge. In the league. Yeah, yeah. Um, Negredo hasn't really done much, he's scored three goals in 14-15 games. But another positive you can actually take from it is that Valencia have lost just two home games in the last, um, just under two years really, so... It, it, yeah, I, A draw, maybe? And they're just 10 points behind a EuroLeague spot, and they're still in the EuroLeague, and they play against Rapid Vienna, so there might be a turning point in the season. There's a lot to play for. I mean, you mentioned um, Negredo there. I mean, it's probably one of the signings that you could point to this faulty transfer um, you know, uh, approach that they've had. I mean, they signed him on loan from City last year with a fixed price of 27 million euros. And I think he scored six goals last season and they still had to pay 27 million euros. So he should be a good buy for them, though. He's he should a, be, he's, absolutely. He's, a, he's, you know, he's strong, he's athletic. Yeah. You know, he's he did decent enough at yeah. City. Yeah. I mean, he really should be a good player for them. The sort of player that can that can help them out of this hole, right? Yeah, exactly. And he was completely out of favour earlier before uh, Neville arrived and has come back in. It does suit Neville's... Uh, tactical approach uh, a lot better. Um, he can lead a line better than most of the rest of the, the Valencia squad. But it just does go to show, you know, the money that they've spent on these players is, is really not paid off at all. Lewis Ambrose from the Daily Cannon is on the line and ready to talk to us about the biggest game in the Premier League this weekend, which is Arsenal against uh, Leicester. Arsenal, of course, ended Leicester's unbeaten start to the season back in late September with that um, impressive 5-2 win. Lewis, how confident would you be of them repeating the performance this Sunday? Um, the performance, not so much. Maybe the result, not not by three goals, perhaps. But the performance was really good that day. We managed to control midfield and we didn't get caught on the break too often. And I have to fear that would be a different story at home, especially when we're five points behind and really chasing the win. Is the is the nightmare scenario for you for Leicester to get an early goal like they did against Man City last weekend and be able to to sort of sit deep and close ranks um, between midfield and defence and then to close down that space for Arsenal to attack into? Yeah, that's what was so impressive about them last week, wasn't it? That they got the early goal and it completely played into their hands. The, the game plan didn't change and it didn't have to and they could pick City off. So we know that Arsenal like to keep the ball. We know that Arsenal like to play through the middle of the park. And if Leicester do manage to score early, then it could be uh, could be early days. It's going to be a long afternoon if that happens. And you'd fear the title race for Arsenal anyway would be as good as over with the schedule that we've got coming up. So keeping it tight in the early stages might be massive for us. What sort of plan do you think Finger has to kind of coax Leicester out a bit and to to you know you know to make make some space in between the defence and the midfield like that players like Özil and uh, you know Ramsey and Walcott can can get into and really you know run at run at um, the Leicester defence. 
Um, I think the important thing is to be patient. There's no need to chase the game, which Arsenal have done in the past. They've cost themselves games, usually in Champions League ties, when there's still a long time left to go, especially if it's the first leg in the Champions League. Just be patient and don't force it. Um, if if any space does appear, if Leicester make a mistake, if Leicester lose their concentration, Ozil or Ramsey will find it. And it's about taking those chances when they do arise. I think he might start with Oxlade Chamberlain on the right again, like he did at Bournemouth last weekend when Ramsey was playing on the right earlier in the season. He almost became a third central midfielder. And Hector Bellerin obviously engine to run for days down the right flank to so we don't lose that width and we can still stretch them across the pitch and I think he might try and do the same with Chamberlain this weekend with Ramsey in the middle and Chamberlain becoming a sort of third century midfielder to try and outnumber Leicester in the middle uh, Lewis uh, what's the feeling around the Arsenal fans I mean it's it's a huge weekend in terms of the title race, and we'll probably get to that a bit more um, in a bit. But at least, what's the feeling um, among the Arsenal fans um, in terms of this game? Um, it, it's on a knife edge, really. I think. I think people are really looking forward to it because last weekend really saw Leicester. I don't think there's anybody writing them off anymore after last weekend. Agreed. Sort of went into the last week. They played Liverpool at home as well saying, oh, well, Leicester's next three games are Liverpool, City and Arsenal away, and by then we'll see that they won't really be in the title race. They obviously are. Um, they're five points ahead of us, they're six points clear of City, and five ahead of Spurs as well. Um, and between now and the last few games of the season, they've got a fairly comfortable run, so this is huge. Um, there's, like I say, five points between us. There's no way that can become eight points. But I think people, especially at home, are fairly optimistic. Um, Alexis is back. Obviously, he's yet to perform the way we know he can yet, but he's coming back. Ramsey's playing well. Ozil's been superb all season. Um, I, I think people are quietly confident at the moment. Uh, we've seen... Uh, Mar- like, we all know how good Maris has been all season with his left foot. But one of the things I noticed against City was how he won the free kick that led to the first goal with his right foot and then scored the second one with his right foot as well. Uh, is there any way that Wenger can stop him at all? Or um, he, he was superb against us, it must be said, last season as well. He, he didn't really go notice at the time because we won fairly comfortably at the Emirates. Um, it was just before Leicester really kicked into form to stay up. They played five at the back that day, and he, I think he played on the left, and he could have scored a couple of goals. He really had us in trouble. And it, when you watch that game, it's the Mares that everybody has now seen this season. Maybe we didn't see it so much last year. I, I think, luckily for us, we've got Nacho Monreal, who's been absolutely superb all season, um, even in big games, big games against Bayern Munich, games against City, where he's coming up against the very best opponents, and he's not been caught wanting at any point. It's another big uh, test, but Mahrez didn't really affect the game um, at, at the other, the away game either. So, fingers crossed, Monreal can stay composed and also playing on the left-hand side, Alexis, is going to be pretty important for if we do need to double up and just being caught on the break, I guess, not over-committing, which Monreal tends to pick his runs pretty well. If Arsenal were to lose, they trail by eight points, 12 games to go. Would that be it? Yeah, yeah, it would. 12 games to go, including away games at Upton Park, uh, Old Trafford, the Etihad and White Hart Lane. 
I don't see any coming back from eight points behind. Even even if Leicester go through a blip, City are still there, Spurs are still there. Not with easy run-ins, but with fewer big away games to play. We've got Everton away as well. So 12 to go and five, six really, really tough games left. What does that mean for Wenger then? He's 66 now, hasn't won a league for 12 years. OK, there was the two FA Cups, but is there then the sense that maybe his time is... His time is up now because you're never going to get a better chance to win the league, right? Certainly for the next few years, with Pep Guardiola joining the club in the country which can spend the most money, is the best manager in the world, the best tactician in the world. Um, I, I can't see anyone really challenging Man City over the next three years consistently. This is definitely the biggest chance of the best chance. And what it means for Arsene Wenger, I'm not entirely sure. It does mean he will stay. Um, He's got one year left on his contract anyway, and he'll see that out. Whether or not he signs a new one probably depends on how the next year and a half goes. But I think as far as Arsenal are concerned, there aren't many men on the board who have a real great knowledge of football. The way that Dortmund went and got Thomas Tuchel in the summer, uh, well, in April, I don't think many, many of the guys at Arsenal higher up will make brave decisions to go and get managers who aren't necessarily big names so the likes of Guardiola Ancelotti, Klopp maybe, they're the sort that are going to make their shortlist and I don't know if anyone's available right now or will be for a couple of years and that may determine whether or not Wenger feels he has to stay a little bit longer. Great, uh, before we let you go we will just do a quick round of word association with you so we're going yep, sure. to throw some words at you and you can just give us a, a one word response is that okay? Yeah, okay. this should be good. Uh, City v Tottenham? Uh, horrible. <laughs> Daniel Sturridge? Injured. Uh, Wenger? Legend. And Ozil? Class. Champions League chances? Over. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, before we let you go, do you have a prediction for the match at the weekend? I think Arsenal win. I think there'll be a goal for two for both sides, um, and I think Arsenal will have enough quality to to see out a three-one. Okay. Thanks very much for talking to us. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Lloyd. Uh, Randall Hook from Bundesliga Fanatic is ready to talk to us about the midweek games in the DFB Pokal. Uh, thanks for joining us, Randall. Thanks for having me. Howdy, everyone. Uh, I think we should start off this week with what was probably the shock of the round, and that was Bremen's win over Leverkusen. To put this in some context, Bremen are hopelessly out of form. They have six points from their last six games. They're five points off the bottom spot in the Bundesliga, and they have the worst defence in the league. Also, they've just been thumped last week by Mönchengladbach. So how did they manage to find a way past Leverkusen, Randall? Well, I think we can probably place some of the blame on Leverkusen, too. Leverkusen's kind of a curious animal because um, they're, they're often really wildly praised for their offensive style. They obviously have a very thick roster of offensive talent. Um, their coach, Rago Schmidt, is considered uh, a, an offensively oriented guy. He, he, he will insult a defensive playing team because he doesn't think that it makes for good football, and that's not what it's all about. But the fact of the matter is Leverkusen actually really 
struggles to score fairly frequently. They uh, they struggle through games and uh, will have to come back and get a goal here or there, and then they'll have they'll they'll break out for three or four game uh, goals in a match. But they they've really struggled with that offensive identity all season, and and it shows by them not being at the very top of the table. They've had to fight back into uh, even European contention. Bremen is, it's true that they have been uh, struggling for the most part of the season. They had a pretty good return from the winter break, however. Um, they, they stumbled quite a bit in the in the league over uh, on Friday night against Borussia Mönchengladbach, uh, losing 5-1, to one. but they drew with Hertha Berlin, who's having a great season, and they beat Schalke on the first game back from the winter break. So um, not an entirely unexpected result, but yes, certainly a little bit unexpected. Also... Leverkusen doesn't play that well at home. They're much better on the road. Randall, I just got a question, just backtracking a little bit um, when you were talking about Leverkusen and their their forward struggles. Um, it seems that Schmidt has a little bit of a problem settling on his favoured, um, I guess, uh, approach. You know, with Kiesling, Hernandez, Mamedi, and Brandt, there hasn't really been a lot of consistency over the over the season. I mean, Kiesling being out of favour early on, working his way back in. I'm not sure if him and Hernandez are the best. Uh, combination just yet, Mamedi um, again in and out. Um, do you think that really is the root of their problems? Perhaps a little bit. I think the funny thing is, you know, without Chicharito, who they kind of got late in the summer window, uh, you don't, just don't know where the goals would be coming from. Uh, it, it did seem at one point that the team had moved on. You know, Leverkusen had just moved on from Kiesling, and it really had seemed even just maybe as late as late November, that he was probably going to move on, and he didn't really want to, but he wasn't really getting the playing time. Uh, in It was match day 16, I think, against Borussia Mönchengladbach. He scored, he came in and he started for the first time in a month, maybe two months, or I should say two months. He scored two goals, had two assists, so now he's a back being a regular guy. He's a regular part of the team, but that I think you're right. I, I do think Rog Roger Schmidt, he kind of uh, bounces back and forth looking for something that works, but everything seems to only work for a short amount of time, and then it's not, and then you get back into a waiting pattern of, well, what's gonna, what, what'll be next? What'll work next? Uh, There's just no telling. Uh, so Bremen will play Bayern in the in the semi final. Um, what did you make of of Bayern's performance last night? Because to me, it looked like. They were a bit sloppy at times, especially in defence, maybe susceptible to, to some long balls. It just it seemed a bit all over the place from Bayern at times. Yeah, well, the, the, I think they're, they've grown very used to not having to play so much defence. It's, it's a little funny that a second division team was, uh, was among the first to really put them on the heels. Although I will say that over the weekend, Leverkusen, uh, who did not score on them, did play quite a bit in Bayern's end for really long stretches of the match um, but yeah there's a there was a certain bit of lethargy going on I, I just really don't know what was going on it was funny comparing the the Bayern match to the Dortmund match watching the uh, the Dortmund players a lot of smooth passing uh, very comfortable in what they were doing and finishing their chances whereas Bayern seems to be almost fighting against their system not really working well together. It just didn't seem like a team in shape. And you start to wonder, 
uh, th- there's been a lot of rumors about um, behind the scenes battles between players and coaches. You have, you know, of course, Pat Bordiola is uh, a lame duck coach, right? He's on his way out the door. Um, and you wonder how much this affects those guys. But at the end of the day, you look at the roster, and you, these are professional players. And at any given time, considering these are 11, you know, at any time they can put out 11 of the best players in the world. And at any given time, they can just kind of roll to, as you saw, a 3 nothing victory without even taking a deep breath. So I, I don't think they're entirely healthy right now, um, both mentally and, of course, physically. They're certainly missing some players. Um, but, you know, if they snap back to form over the weekend and score six goals, nobody will be surprised. Uh, you mentioned Dortmund. Uh, Obermann Yang had, had quite the game. He set up the first Dortmund goal against Stuttgart, scored the second and had a hand in the third. That's 30 goals in 31 games. Dortmund have a history of struggling to hold on to players like this. Are they going to be able to do it this summer? You know, it's hard to say. You say they they have a history of struggling to hold on to players, and that's somewhat true, but uh, Marco Royce is still around, and he's been rumored to be going to... uh, you know, all the big names over the last several seasons, and he will be again over the summer. I believe, I want to say I read something that said that uh, Obama Yang himself may be leaning towards leaving. It's certainly a possibility. Uh, You said that he had a hand in that last goal. It was, um, for those who didn't see it, it was just a 100% effort situation where uh, he he pressed a ball near midfield and his speed just created a huge problem for the, the Stuttgart. I can't remember who had it. Uh, the ball got by him and he just bolted to goal. And then it was two Dortmund players on, on the keeper and uh, poor Langerak probably would have liked a better way to see his old teammates again. But um, yeah, it was a total gimme. That was uh, the guy. Who, I could have scored that goal. And uh, Obama Young missed another one that was just, just, you wouldn't say it was a gimme, but it was pretty close. Um, he's amazing, and uh, somebody's probably going to put a lot of money forward to get him. Dortmund has the money to keep him, so it's really going to be up to what Pierre Emmerich, Obama Young, really wants out of his career going forward. And far too often that is one of the Spanish teams or somewhere in England. So we'll see. Uh, it's a bit early yet, but did you want to predict a winner for the Cup? Of the cup, oh, I I'd, I'd still say Bayern has to be the favorite. I I, I can't, you know, it, it, I'm an American. If you couldn't tell by the accent, um, <laughs> and and probably me using some uh, some dodgy terminology, but um, you know, in in the tournaments of the sports where I grew up watching. Those games all happen consecutively, so you get into a situation where there's momentum and uh, or form, as we like to say in in the world's beautiful game, right? The beautiful game. Um, and 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 I was really enjoying watching the compare and contrast between Bayern and Dortmund. They look like two very they, they look like two ships passing in opposite directions right now. Like they just they 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 were both. Clearly, the superior team on the pitch as far as um, class of players go. You had one team that seemed very lighthearted, kind of having fun with it when they were, and then, you know, they'd miss a close goal. They'd all kind of smile amongst each other and get right back to work. Whereas Bayern seemed to just really be annoyed by the fact they couldn't, you know, they didn't get a real shot in, until the 39th minute against the second division team. If you're at Fauf Bay Stuttgart, 
okay, that's fine. But this is Bayern. They're, you know, they're a hand, there's only a handful of teams that get mentioned in the same sentence as Bayern. So if, these, if the championship was next weekend and it was Dortmund against Bayern, I'd, I'd be leaning towards Dortmund. The final doesn't come for a couple months yet, so I'd say Bayern remains the favorite until uh, until the wheels really fall off, and then we'll start looking maybe in a different direction. Uh, before we let you go, we'd like to just do a quick uh, round of word association. Word association? Oh. Who's the psychiatrist there? <laughs> that would be Paddy. All right, Paddy. Uh, uh, I'm ready. <clears throat> okay, so Guardiola? Gone. Julian Nagelsmann? Who the hell is Julian Nagelsmann? <laughs> the new Hoffenheim coach. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, um... Good luck. Video replays? Awesome, bring them. Tennis balls? Keep them on the tennis courts. Get them away from my sport. And Leipzig? It's a city somewhere. I heard they sell soft drinks. Keep them out of the league. But they're coming. Okay, thanks for talking to us today, Randall. All right, guys, have a great afternoon. Or evening, I guess. Thanks for listening and thanks to you, Paddy. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Chris. Thanks a lot. Ryan. Pleasure. Let us know what you think by hitting us up on Twitter or Facebook and make sure you download the One Football app. Thanks. Bye.